I think that's that's like one of the biggest hurdles that I think architects face in doing projects outside of their area, right? Is that it, it takes years to get familiar with certain codes and processes and find good builders and tier zones, all that kind of stuff in, in little niche markets. I know that Newport Beach is one of the most complex areas to get a house permitted and, and entitled maybe anywhere in the world. And it's taken us, me, like over 20 years and I still miss stuff. <laughs> If I was a guy coming from Scottsdale trying to do a house in Newport, I'd, you know, I'd be freaking out. Really try to engage builders and engineers and people who have that local experience and are willing to kind of share in that. It's, so it's kind of a mixed bag, but I feel like finding good local partners is a cornerstone of success for far away projects. Welcome to episode 78. I'm Brad Levitt, and you're listening to the AFT Construction Podcast. And this week's episode, we're fortunate to host Chris Brandon of Brandon Architects in Southern California. And I've been a huge fan of Brandon Architects for a long time now. Chris was gracious to come on and it was important for me to speak to him about his process. You know, what is it that the architect does at the very beginning with the client? How do they work with them through budget, with the contractor, with the team, and especially in regard to BIM modeling. As Chris is working through design, he can really help the client envision the space. So he can go through the design, he can walk them through, tour them through, so essentially, it shows them what the finished product will look like instead of just looking 2D on a set of planes. And it also helps from the contractor side when you start thinking about mechanical design and does everything flow, and even more importantly, content. Brandon Architects has done a phenomenal job with social media, especially Instagram. They have a great platform. And so now, through all of the technology that they use, they can use this to render and have content for their uh, followers that are on social media. A great listen. He gives a lot of valuable advice about running your company, being an entrepreneur, and especially as it relates to architecture. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Enjoy. So welcome today to Construction Podcast, and I am Brad Levitt, and we are super fortunate today to have with us Mr. Chris Brandon. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Brad. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so anyone that spends any time on social media, I can absolutely guarantee that you've seen some of Chris's work and his team from Brandon Architects. They are an architectural firm in Southern California, they're in Newport Beach, and do some amazing work. I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, and and especially the way that you've cultivated your brand, your reputation, Chris. And, you know, social media is really interesting because it's a way that we can not only connect with others, you know, and build this reputation and build this this network, but it's also a way for you to showcase your product unlike ever before. You know, so... Sure. you've And you've had tremendous success on Instagram. So where did that start? Did you have a game plan to go after social media? I mean, how did that kind of work with the business strategy? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, no, I, you know, it was kind of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, gui- I was guided to it, you know, but we were sort of doing things even before Instagram became really popular. Um, I started the firm in 2009 and it was just me kind of working out of a spare bedroom, um, working with clients, kind of slowly building things up as we, started to get a little more of a uh, portfolio behind us. You know, I saw the value in hiring good photographers, getting good images at the end of a project. Um, that's kind of like our currency, right? It's trading in uh, images and, and portfolios, past work, and being able to show that off. Um, in the early days, we were using things like House and Facebook, um, Pinterest, you know, doing all that stuff. I was never like really big in social media myself personally. So <laughs> I think I kind of missed that uh, generation. Um, but uh, as one of my marketing guys actually early on, it's like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta get your account on Instagram. You gotta get the stuff up there. Like it's a 
better platform, easier to share all your images. So I had an intern, um, gosh, I don't know, it was back in like 2011 or 2012 or something, kind of get us up and running. And then, um, yeah, just kind of snowball started to grow from there. You know, we were super pumped to get like 2,000 followers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And now here you are soon to be 200,000, right? It's, it's interesting yeah. how, I mean, you were an early adopter of Instagram, right? I mean, you were on much earlier than I was, you know, but what's interesting is I've never heard anyone use the term currency when they think of photography, as you just mentioned, Chris, which I think is really important. You know, so many of us, you know, yeah. don't spend either the means or the time or the effort to photograph and document, you know, the designs and process and the, the final project. And, and for you as an architect, I mean, think your work's really heavy lifting in the very beginning, and then it's off to the contractor and designer and furnishing. So it's even yeah. more effort from you. I mean, how do you manage that complexity of trying to keep in the process, keep communicating with the client and the team so you have that opportunity to come photograph at the end? Um, yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's it, obviously a lot of work that uh, comes before those finished photographs, you know, and, and traditionally, it took years to get to that point, you know, like we'd draw a house, it might take us six months or a year to get it permitted. And then, you know, it could take at least a year, sometimes two or three years to build it, depending on how complicated it is. And then you got to hope that you can get photographs right away, but sometimes that takes time too, you know, they got to get it staged and two designers got to do their thing. And then the photographs might come back like another month later, and then you'd have to wait even more time for it to get published, right? Like traditionally you have a PR person that go out, kind of shop around, might take another six months to a year to place it somewhere. So like the stuff you literally designed like four or five years ago is, is in the magazine finally, or it's out there for people to see. Um, so Instagram has been great and, and a lot of social media platforms have been a great way for us to just instantly get stuff out there when we get those photographs. I think those are really important, but also just to share in the process too, you know, like renderings are really great. Um, and we saw the value in that early on, just the technology that we use being a, a 3d based, uh, firm here doing everything in BIM, we can see our designs are sort of coming to life digitally before they're ever built. Um, so being able to have these photorealistic renderings done is a great way to share that work as we're designing right now, you know, before we don't even have to wait for it to finish construction before we can share it, you know, with the masses, which is really cool. So we're, we're able to pump out our most current thoughts and designs and trends before they're really even becoming a reality. I love that because when you think about, you know, it's, it's so content driven, right? Social media. And, and for anyone listening, you know, if you're not actively engaged in a social media strategy from all the platforms as you've done, Chris, so well, and your team is, is, is it really shows, you know, your talent, right? As a, as an art artist, right? You're designing these amazing homes, these amazing projects in these amazing locations. And, and what's, what you mentioned now is that yes, in the past, when it was just publications, you had all this time and then you have to get published. And I mean, it's a five-year process where yeah. now it, it's probably still a four-year process, you know, to get some of the final photography, but the advantages yeah. with renderings and content, you know, now that you've adopted so much as technology, well, this can help your strategy because you can show things that are modern and current as well as, you know, things yeah. you designed three years ago that are still holding true today. And I think you can kind of see it as a, it's a sea change too, right? It's almost like this is, the ability to do this is, is I think causing trends and things to shorten too, because, you know, we used to see things cycle, everything comes, you know, there's fads that come and go and these cycles would be like maybe 10, 12 years long. Um, 
kind of get into certain styles or whatever. Um, and I think that was a big part of it. But now, yeah, there's people can digest stuff so much faster and so much more of it that you're definitely you're seeing these trends shorten, you know, the time frames and, and things are kind of getting popular and, you know, it's just so much more accessible that uh, I think it's going to be hard for these traditional media forms to kind of keep up, you know. It's interesting. So, so when you say it is more accessible and people have so much access to now branded architects where they maybe didn't have that before, you know, how has social media impacted your business, you know, as far as growth or reputation or just an ability to select different projects that you want to work on? Yeah, it's been huge, honestly. You know, I think it's, it's brought our work to a broader audience. You know, we, we kind of built our firm and our, our foundation and our, um, reputation on doing really great work here locally in Newport Beach and kind of all over Orange County. And really at the end of the day, your best um, calling card is your work, you know, and if somebody can, you know, walk down the street and see the house in real life or be able to walk through it or something, that's the best, you know, <laughs> best way to experience. But if you can see really great photography and videos and all this kind of stuff online, but you might be in Scottsdale, you know, um, or somewhere else around the country, uh, the barrier is really low. You know, you can send a DM, you can shoot off an email, you know, house was, had their own little ways of doing things too, but like you could, you could really, um, get your feelers out there. If you're a potential homeowner or somebody who's interested in design, like, you know, it's much easier to kind of track down, um, professionals who were doing work that resonated with you, you know, so and it really opened us up to a broader audience and allowed us to get little, you know, footholds into some of these other markets, which has been really fun. See, I think that's interesting. When you talk about getting footholds and just having the opportunity to get in other markets, do you find that you receive a lot of lead generation and opportunities through, uh, through Instagram or house or some of these other platforms you're using? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. When we, we have kind of a, we call it a filter here, you know, but we have a way for people to kind of get in contact with us and we always try to find out, you know, where they heard heard about us, you know, where, where the lead generation come from? Was it Instagram website, word of mouth contractor, you know, cause we, we try to keep tabs of, uh, you know, how those quality leads are, are coming to us. Well, it's interesting because I think any company you, you do have to audit essentially how those leads are coming in so that you know where to put, uh, you know, those dollars, right? I mean, not that you yeah. have to put dollars essentially in social media. I mean, you may, but it's also time commitment. Sure. So, are, you know, are the efforts that you're putting in time of Instagram, is it, is it bringing that fruit to, you know, to our company? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I look at it as a, a huge uh, return on investment. You know, the, again, the old traditional way of like, Hey, you know, spend a few thousand bucks every couple of months on an ad in these different magazines, or you have a, you know, print campaign and all this kind of stuff. Like it's, it's really hard to gauge uh, what your, you know, engagement is. Um, and with social media, it's just, it's, it's instantaneous. You know, if you put popular stuff out there, you get the feedback, you get the comments, even if it's not turning into a job for you right away, you can tell, you know, if it's resonating with people or not. So, you know, going back to 2009, cause I know that you've now it's, there's a lot different looking back, right? You've built this reputation. Social media has really taken a life of its own. You've seen the success and network there, you know, but going back to 2009, this is, you know, one of the worst times to open a company in <laughs> yeah. Southern California, Arizona, where I'm from. I mean, this was a super tough market. I mean, what gave you the courage to say, okay, I'm ready. Let's start our business, you know, in this recession. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I kind of had to. It was uh, it was do or die, you know. <laughs> it was, uh, I was I worked for a couple of local architects um, in town, and you know it was tough. And it just it, it, like I get I was in a situation that just became apparent that it you know wasn't going to work out long term. And I was newly married, and we had just moved to uh, the South Bay, actually Hermosa Beach, and um, it was kind of like I could continue to bail water out of an obviously sinking ship or kind of go out on my own and try and, you know, form a life raft, <laughs> make it work. So I was lucky to have like one, one uh, really great client um, on my own and I just, you know, kind of hustled and, and tried to make ends meet in those early days. Which is always tough, you know, starting a company, you know, so was there a tipping point that you had at some point from 2009 to now? I mean, where was that tipping point and when did you see the business really starts to take momentum and you're like, okay, we're in a position now where we can start developing systems and hiring and really, you know, hit our stride. Yeah. That's a great question too. Um, I look back and think making my first hire was probably, um, the most, one of the more pivotal points, you know, it was, um, you know, starting the company in the recession and then just, you know, literally trying to put food on the table for the first couple of years was sort of the main goal. You know? And then as you, Get busier and you know you still think you can kind of do it all or you're fine doing it all um so having that mental shift like hey i can i can kind of split my resources here and, and bring somebody on to help out but you know having that responsibility was a big thing for me too you know like i've been shaky enough just uh you know providing for my wife and myself and then having you know responsible employees but it was like the single most important and best thing I did for my company, you know, that, that guy's still with me today. It's, he's, uh, 10 years. Wow. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool, but we've, yeah, we've had great retention. So it's, you know, a, a tipping point, you can maybe kind of look at that, but like really our growth trajectory is, you know, kind of been on the team and stuff that I've built around me over the years. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, any of us to be successful, you have to have an amazing team around you, right? Good people that are passionate about what they do. And you know, how does that, incorporate into the company now, right? The company's grown you. And, and one thing that I've really noticed about your firm is that you're very complex in the sense that you can do a modern style, you can do contemporary, you know, transitional, traditional. So you work through these different styles and aesthetics, you know, so how ha, have you, where does the creativity come from, you know, with the team to, to work on these very complex yet very different projects? Sure. Yeah. I, I try not to have a traditional, um, kind of office structure here, I guess. I mean, it kind of comes from my background of just working for other smaller shops, never really having that background of being in like a bigger firm. Um, so we don't have like the traditional like design side of the office and production side that you might uh, hear about or uh, interact with. I really kind of believe in like an overall growth and uh, experience for my team. So I try to get everybody involved in every aspect of the job. Um, I think it's one of the nice things about doing custom residential is that they're, they're, um, you know, highly designed. There's a lot of intricacies and, and effort and details and stuff that you got to go through, but they're kind of a short cycle for architects. You know, they're not, we can design them in about six months or under a year and getting them built in a year or uh, two years is actually pretty quick. When you think about other, you know, structures and things that people can do in the architectural space. Um, so, we, we basically build a team with each project and I try to get people kind of exposed to different um, product types, different designs. Um, 
I guess you can kind of think of me as the creative director, um, you know, more so than the president or the founder here. I still try to, you know, keep tabs on everything that goes out of the office. It, it kind of has to, the design's got to get past me before it gets to the client. Um, but I've just got, you know, really incredible uh, teammates and, and staff members who can kind of design. And right is there a different, yeah. And as far as, you know, what the team's working on, I know it passes by you, of course, you know, to make sure that you have your stamp of approval, but is there a certain style or aesthetic that speaks to you most that you like to be involved in or design? Yeah, I get asked that a lot too. Um, I don't know. I enjoy them, them all really. I think, uh, for me, there's like a perfect house for a perfect spot. You know, it really kind of depends on the location, the lot size, whether it's views, things like that. Um, I enjoy the modern stuff because I feel like you really do have a very uh, blank slate to start with, you know? Um, but I also really enjoy the traditional, what we do most is what I call transitional, it's sort of traditional rooted uh, vernacular styles, you know, but with a modern kind of twist or updated for our modern lifestyles. And those are fun because it, I almost find those are harder because you're trying, you're given like a toolbox right out of the gate, you know, and so you're, your hands are kind of tied in certain things, but you're trying to think outside the box. And, you know, people might love an image of a house that was built a couple hundred years ago on the East Coast, you know, with the shingles and the quaint window panes, all this kind of stuff. Um, but you would never want to really live in one of those. Was, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a bunch of walls, small rooms, and there's no you know, ceilings are low. So, like, I think it's really interesting adapting that kind of stuff to our modern lifestyles. And, you know, indoor outdoor stuff, which we get to do in Southern California, which is huge. Yeah, it makes a big difference. You know, when you're designing in Southern California, Arizona, you have that indoor outdoor living, you know, which does make a big difference, you know, and especially windows, you know, the views of the ocean or other things that you have in your market that, you know, will, will change the aesthetic. And as you mentioned, these older homes that are limited from their pitch, they're limited from the ceiling heights and rooms where everything yeah. is like very much room driven, whereas now it's more open space, bigger gathering areas, entertainment, which... You know, it's a trend that is something we'll see continue, right? Especially with COVID. I mean, that's something that's not going to go away as people are yeah. spending more time at home. Yeah. There's a common, few common threads, I think, in our work. Um, you know, big open floor plans, indoor-outdoor flow um, are big ones. A lot of natural light. We're kind of known for putting tons of doors and windows and skylights and stuff into our projects. Um, and lots of volume, too, taller ceilings. So whether we're doing contemporary stuff or we're transitional um, designs, it's kind of a common thread. Yeah, what's interesting from the architect perspective, you know, I have a lot of clients that reach out and say, okay, Brad, what's the process? We want to move forward. We want to do a custom home. You know, how do we get from A to B, right? And so from, from your perspective, Chris, if someone comes in, if I'm a customer and I'm calling you up and I want to have Brandon Architects design my home, how, how's that process from when I make that first call or let's just say we sign the contract today until we have the permit and we break ground. What does that look like? Sure. Um, we work with clients of all different um, backgrounds and all different um, levels of experience with doing this kind of thing, right? Like some of them have built a couple of homes already. They've been through the process. Um, others are just like doing it for the first time. They might be really terrified. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I always tell them that if you've never done it before, you've really come to the right place. You know, we, we, um, enjoy trying to demystify what architects do as much as possible. Uh, we pride ourselves on making our, our 
process, a very client-focused process. Um, I think that's another one of the reasons why our portfolio, portfolio is very diverse, is that we enjoy um, the client's creativity and their passion and their ideas for the project. You know, like we kind of take a little inspiration, a little spark from them and their story or their aesthetic and kind of build upon that. But um, yeah, it, it can get uh, tricky. The other thing I say is that I want them to be happy all the way through the process, you know? <laughs> I want them to be emotionally engaged and excited about it all the way through. As you know, that's, uh, that's not easy, especially when it comes to the construction budgeting and uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, you know, it's, they're, they're always getting upset at some point, you know, it's just, it's kind of a given, nothing's, nothing's perfect, but uh, we use a lot of technology, we, you know, those renderings we were talking about are a great tool, um, because it takes all the imagination out of it, you know, we're, we don't kind of do the traditional, like, hey, here's your floor plan, then here's this elevation, there's the side elevation, here's the sections, where everything's kind of more mechanical type drawings, and they're, you know, if you're not trained to read those like you and I are, it's hard to envision what the house is really going to look like. So those renderings have been a great tool because it's just like, bam, you know, you can, you can see exactly what the house is going to look like. We put the neighbors in there, the context, uh, even the power lines sometimes, you know, <laughs> try, to, try to make it as uh, realistic as possible. So there's no, you know, imagination required, but there's also like everyone's communicating on the same level too, you know, like, you and I um, talk about certain things and we understand each other. The clients, you know, sometimes they might say like, oh, this is really modern to me or contemporary. Like it means something totally, totally different, you know? So just making sure that everyone's on the same wavelength and just trying to talk about the project and understand it is, uh, is important. I think that's interesting, you know, the interpretation part, right? Because there is an understanding that you have as the architect, I may have as the builder, and the client has a totally different understanding of what this terminology or some of these words mean. And it's important for us to understand, well, how do we interpret? What are they saying to us? How, you know, how do we put this in context where they can understand? And not only that, but really interpret what they're saying. When you say it looks too modern and you're like, well, what does modern mean, right? Like, right. how's that affecting this design? And But how do you tackle, I think, the B word, the big one, the budget, right? So, I mean, for you yeah. as the architect, I, I feel like, in a lot of cases, you're set up in a really tough position because the client's going to put a lot of pressure on you, Chris, and say, what's the budget? This is our budget. And so how do you navigate that, especially where you're not pricing stuff every day? You know, things can be built a year down the road, as you mentioned, so pricing could change. So how do you at least give them a pulse or work through that process? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, the, the core concept of keeping the clients happy is uh, managing expectations, right? Like that's that's what any business owner in our industry is going to tell you. Um, that's easier said than done. Because um, like everybody, human nature, we want more than what we really, you know, can afford at the end of the day or our eyes are bigger than our stomach, whatever. Like it's just kind of the way things can happen. Sometimes the house can come out, uh, you know, bigger once you kind of get your full wish list in there and you know everybody's got a budget even my clients who don't need to have a budget they should have a budget you know like I, I get the practical and pragmatic side of what we do you know you, even if you could spend a zillion dollars to build something it's not really a good idea you know um everything has the right kind of place and, and budget and sort of balance depending on where the property is located and what it might be worth at the end of the day so but Talking to clients about the budget is definitely one of the hardest things 
we we do without a doubt you know and it's 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 about even from the first time I meet them, kind of being honest in what I see of our of our projects and what the costs are. So that that part of the managing expectations, I just try to get out in the open right away. I don't. I try not to be the architect that treats the budget like it's an elephant in the room. You know, like <laughs> I don't. It's like it's easy to talk about like, hey, how how great our designs are. Here's the process, the renderings. Like it's all so cool, and you can get everything you want. But like at the end of the day they've got to pay for it and like they've got an idea when they walk in the door of what they want to spend or what they think they need to spend and you want to make sure that you're you know that you're kind of lined up there that what you're going to design what you're going to do for them is is going to be you know on on level with what they're thinking and if it's not then it's just not a good fit right from the get-go so trying to get some of those big numbers you know in the beginning it's like unit costs you know we might talk about um you know, $600, $800 a square foot or something like that. It really depends on the location and the complexity of the job. But we try to use kind of general numbers at least to get us a range or a ballpark. Um, and so that clients can really understand, okay, if I want a 5,000 square foot house, it could cost about this. If I want a 3,000 square foot house, it's going to cost around this, you know. So just, it's a long conversation. But I try to get that out in even our preliminary meetings, you know, just to make sure that, um, before we get engaged, before we go further down the road, that um, the goals are kind of aligned. And then, you know, the actual um, getting it out to bid and brass tacks of how much the project's going to cost is uh, a tricky process, too, as you know. There's kind of the traditional method of like, hey, let's, let's get all the plans done, let's hire the landscape architect and tier designer, let's spec everything out, let's get all the plans done, submit them to the city, and then they go out to the bid at the same time, right? And I'll tell my clients, like, look, I'm gonna do my best here, but I'm not a contractor, I'm not a qualified cost estimator, like, I'm gonna kinda do things that I, based on my experience, I think are gonna work out and, and work within your budget, but, you know, it's, it's kinda like a disclaimer, I don't really know, until it goes out to bid. And then that's when they, you know, the lowest bid might come back like a million dollars more than what they're asking. Or yeah. you know, That's kind of like the traditional method, right? But what I try to do with most of my clients, and, and Patterson is, is one of the better ones out here being able to do this, is um, get them kind of hooked up and thinking about the budget with a contractor earlier on, you know. Um, so that as we're going through the different design phases, we can kind of get... Um, checks at, uh, at those phases before they've made up all their decisions, you know, but that traditional method, when the budget comes back over, you're, um, you don't have a lot of great options, you know, in order to reduce the budget, you got to kind of cut scope, redo the drawings, make a bunch of changes, you're going to have to pay extra for all these, you know, designers and engineers to change things. So it's better to work with a partner who can kind of, you know, do the work to actually look at what you've designed and put some numbers to it that are kind of based in reality so that as we go and we get to all those decisions, there's not a big surprise for those clients, you know. I know that's a lot of work, but it's kind of like a design build, de facto design build, right? Like if you and I were under the same umbrella, that's what we would be doing with these clients to get from point A to point B, right? And I love that you gave those examples because the traditional method, which I agree, I feel that it does a disservice to the client in many ways because you're spending all this time working and you know you, your expertise is in the design and architecture and the structural components right chris and then you know for them to go out and price well if it comes in over budget then 
yeah, what do they do? They have to start making these massive changes. But if you work, if, if they have the builder involved with you as architect from the early on beginning, as you mentioned, there's check phases, as you, you were discussing earlier, that you have designs with a lot of windows and natural lights. So, okay, we know our window elevations. We know our sizes. Let's get a couple bids out there from the window companies, right? The GC can do then say, okay, we had an allowance of 250000 for windows, and now we're at 380 you know? Or do you want to do that, or do we want to make some changes here? And, you know, it's really important to have that pulse. And if you're a design-build firm, essentially you're doing that anyways. And so that's the advantage. And, you know, so how do the clients – do, do you ever get pushback with the client say, okay, Chris, I understand that you're telling me that I need to bring on the builder early and it makes sense. I need to get the designer early because now we have the team and everyone can kind of work through this pricing. Do you get resistance that, Hey, what if they don't give me good pricing or, sure. what's di- you know, I need to have more bids. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely goes against conventional wisdom, right? Like the client is thinking like, Hey, I don't want to pick my builder now because we don't have everything specified. So he's just going to tell me whatever he thinks it's going to cost. And I'm going to, I'm going to end up paying more, you know, or like, how do I know that this guy's trustworthy or how do I know his numbers are competitive with, you know, builder A, B, and C. So yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a little bit of a leap of faith and it kind of goes against the, like, you know, conventional wisdom of our uh, capitalist, you know, building environment we've got. Um, but I try to tell him, I try to make it a simple, you know, the budget as a designer is only three things I can do to control the budget. There's scope, quality, and, and timing. You know, timing is one of those things, maybe it works out like, hey, we'll build the pool later, or maybe there's a guest house or a certain part of the project that can be phased, you know, so we can kind of break it down into more bite-sized chunks. Uh, scope is really sort of what we're doing as the architects and really giving them what they ask for, what they want, you know. Um, it's gonna be 5,000 square feet you know, five bedrooms, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's going to be kind of set for what they want. And then quality really comes down to, you know, everything from the door window package to the tile that goes on the floor of the secondary shower. So it's that when you've got the plans all done, all those decisions are made, you really can't mess with the scope. So you're really, your your only lever you can pull to get back on budget is reduce the quality. And that, that sucks. You know, they're going to go through the process having to pick out all the stuff that they're not as happy with or, you know, kind of cutting the quality. So we want to get that scope kind of dialed in there as best we can. So if the house is tight and efficient, it's not too big, you know, then they can spend more of the money on the stuff that they're actually going to be looking at and, you know, touching every day. <laughs> yeah. Which is huge. I mean, that communication is so important with everybody. So from a design perspective, you know, how often are you, collaborating with the designer as well are you having interior designers work alongside you on every project that you do yeah we do we try to find really good partners um for every project um i'll tell the clients that up front too it's like we we can and we appreciate we can do the interior design we appreciate the interior design um but i i believe strongly in the collaboration makes for a better project you know and i like to bring on partners and people who are just as passionate about what they do as i am uh, of what I do, you know, and I, I'll be the first one to say like I'm not the guy to take shopping for plumbing fixtures or <laughs> you know, appliances and stuff like that. Um, but you know, the designers are they they know exactly like where the trends are, what's current, like what's where to spend the money. You know, like I I stay in my lane. I know I know what I do and what I'm passionate about, and what what I'm very good at, and I like to bring people on board that. Uh, 
share that you know passion and creativity for what they do too this episode is brought to you by sub-zero wolf and cove for over 75 years sub-zero wolf and cove has specialized in refrigeration cooking and dishwashing that can be found in some of the world's most luxurious homes at aft construction we look forward to crafting our clients dream kitchen when building the home of their dreams to get this process started we locate the nearest showroom and set up an appointment it's that easy since sub-zero wolf and cove specializes in three major categories we can make all of our kitchen selections in one stop. The first one is that Sub-Zero handles refrigeration. They are the preservation specialist. Key features included fresher, longer dual refrigeration, advanced air purification, precise temperature control, customized modular design. This ensures tastier, healthier food and eliminates waste so that the food stays fresher longer. Second is that Wolf is the cooking specialist. Key features include precise heat control, predictable, consistent temperature, intuitive controls and easy to use technology everything is designed with you in mind these features enhance flavors of food ensure consistency and eliminates guesswork delicious results every time and last but not least is cove the cleaning specialist key features include precise water flow superior drying conditions fully adjustable interior for every need and so quiet it never interrupts not only are all products functional and reliable, they look great, truly built to last. To schedule an appointment at your nearest Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom, visit subzero-wolf.com backslash showroom or click the link in our show notes below. So what makes, you know, you, you've built this amazing network, Chris, over the years, you know, the 12 years you've been in business. You know, in your mind, as you're recommending a certain designer or a certain builder to the client, what has the designer or builder done? you know, to build that rapport with you, that reputation where you have the trust from an architect perspective? Sure. Um, track record, really. Kind of. I mean, it's simple. Do what you say you're going to do. It's sort of the, <laughs> the first and lowest bar, maybe, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, making sure they show up and kind of hit deadlines and they're, they're producing stuff. Um, that's always the hardest part, right? Like if you've never worked with somebody before, you have to just kind of try and ask them the right kind of questions, maybe get some referrals from past clients or other architects that they've worked with before. Um, but having done it as long as we have, I think I, I kind of know, you know, the right answers or the right questions and the right answers to those questions to kind of get a peek behind the veil. Um, but I, I realize that like if there's an interior designer or a landscape artist, somebody who, who wants to be working with us, that that's getting that first project is the is the biggest goal. You know, getting getting some kind of a track record um, behind us is uh, the most critical, but it's also the hardest. It's always so. tough because, you know, clients come in so many different ways, right? We were speaking about lead generation that could come from social media, website, you know, referral. You know, do you find that a lot of the customers are coming to you first, Chris, and then you're working on the team? Are they coming from the builder? Are they come from the designers? You built this rapport with them? Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. I should probably sit down and figure out percentages <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah. what that is. But, you know, it it really depends. Uh, a lot of repeat clients will rely on their interior designers sometimes when they, when they find another project or a, a, a new lot or they want to do another deal somewhere. Um, it, whoever they sort of had a good experience with before, they'll kind of latch onto and, and go back to, which is great. I think that referrals kind of come from all sides of the, you know, design and, and build industry. Really, I mean, I've, I've even gotten referrals from uh, painters and, and masons and <laughs> subs on jobs. You know, it's like <laughs> that's amazing. You know, it's kind of everybody. 
everybody understands like who's good at what they do and, and who they like to work with and, and making a referral is like a trust thing, right? So you want to make sure that uh, it's repaid, that you do the best job that you can. That's kind of the, the best way to treat those referrals. But as, as time goes by and everybody sort of gets to know each other, they can kind of come from anywhere and everywhere. You know what, and, and going back to some of your process, Chris, that you mentioned what I like, you know, from my perspective, so I've worked with a plethora of different architects and draftsmen on different projects, residential and commercial. And what I've seen, you know, the architects that have really adopted the technology side, doing the BIM modeling, right? And really understanding the renderings and, you know, the, the visual tours, whether using Inkscape or, um, yeah. you know, chief architect, I mean, whatever it is, as they're going through Revit, you know, and, and they're taking the client through. The, the experience is so much more valuable. One, for me as a contractor, I'm looking, okay, has my architect thought about where we're putting the ductwork, right? It's, we have this amazing modern house or we have this great ceiling design. You know, how am I going to get air conditioning? For me in Arizona, you know, this is something I'm always thinking about because it's hot here in the summer. So I better have right. AC or that client's calling me, you know. But what I've seen is the architects that really take that seriously and are, are spending time in R&D and spending time in developing you know, understanding of the software, the advantage it gives them. And so how, how has that given you the upper edge, you know, with your clients? Because as you mentioned, it's managing expectations. A client may come in and think, oh, this floor plan looks great. You know, the spacing looks good. But then the minute you start walking them through, you know, the house on a rendering tour, it, it could change that quickly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. It sounds like you really uh, know your stuff too. I've worked with some <laughs> architects that are, you're throwing out some names that, you know, not a lot of people would uh, recognize. Um, yeah, we have, I mean, when I went out on my own in, in 2009, I just, uh, I was used to doing everything in CAD, but I had uh, buddies who worked at bigger firms that were doing a lot of stuff in Revit, and I figured I should take a look at it, see if it's worth it, and kind of just, you know, get my hands dirty with it. And uh, we kind of did that uh, for years. Just this last year, we switched over to ArchiCAD, which is uh, it's just a competitor to Revit. I think it's a little better for the custom residential scale that we do. It's a little more fluid, but it, it's all BIM, right? So yep. BIM stands for building information modeling. And, and in our world as architects, it does a lot of great things. Um, and when I meet clients for the first time, I will kind of give them a little bit of a behind the curtain view of uh, what that looks like. Cause it is an, an engine that runs everything that we do from our working drawings to the renderings to the VR. Um, that is the platform that we're using. Um, so I try to break it down to three things. Most importantly, it allows us to communicate a lot better with our clients. It's like I said earlier with the renderings, there's no imagination required, right? Like you can look at a 3D object, you can spin around the whole house, you can walk through it, um, you can do different renderings, you can even use the VR, which has been awesome um, to take them on the inside and get a real sense of the, the scale and uh, sight lines and things like that. Um, so just giving them a deeper understanding, making sure that we're all on the same page, right? Like you said, like when they look at a floor plan, they might think it's great, but when you elevate it or actually walk through it, they might see something that they, they don't like, um, even though you like it. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, here's uh, the value. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. Chris, because I'll, I'll give you an experience here, a story I have. So, you know, when you talk about, you know, the sight lines and, you know, you could have solstice, so you could show them what the sun looks like at 5 p.m. in June, as opposed to maybe you know, uh, noon in December, right? And how that's going to change maybe where their pool location is and their overhangs and windows and kitchen if they're eating dinner so I don't have a glare. 
Well, what's funny is, you know, so the, the pain point for me is, you know, we worked on a project and this was a hillside build, beautiful house. It's ICF, you know, insulated concrete form. So, you know, the house is, is built, constructed, and we're, we're literally the day before pouring all the ICF walls. We pass inspections, so all the walls are up. And the client now visually is like, I don't have views of the surrounding of the desert, of the mountain. And so we're changing window openings in ICF. Now, gratefully, we had them poured, but this still was a major delay, right? We're reordering windows. We had windows in stock. I mean, this is a major thing. And the reason, really what it came down to is the architect did not have any sort of BIM modeling. They couldn't show the client. Had they have done that, you know, with ARCHICAD or whatever it is, then they could have seen that and we could have, you know, saved a lot of time and money for the client and us as the builder, you know, diagnosing this early on. Oh yeah, for sure. And that, that's, that's really the biggest, one of the biggest things uh, with it is that, you know, in essence, you're, you're building a virtual version of the home first, right. And trying to work through all your problems there, making sure the HVAC, the structure fits, uh, all the drops are there. Recess shades is one of my favorite ones, you know, um, but like the, the end result of what the client's going to see when they're inside the home and looking out is huge or what they're going to experience. And, uh, you know, with the old CAD method, I used to call it the Saturday morning phone calls, you know, because uh, <laughs> tr traditionally the, uh, the only time the client could visualize the job was when it was being framed. And when do they go to the job site? You know, Saturday, Saturday, yeah. Saturday morning. Um, I'd be like, why the hell is my, you know, ceiling only eight feet tall over here? You know, I didn't know, I didn't know that. And I have to explain like, well, you know, there's a roof deck up there. It's the maximum height. It's, you know, it was always in the plans. I'm sorry, I thought you knew that. You know, or there's a window. Like, why, you know, Chris, why I got this great view of the ocean here. Like, why isn't there a window in this room or view of the desert, whatever it is. So, yeah, it's, it's critical stuff that you don't want to be uh, making changes in the field because that's just more time and money. So that's, yeah, that's secondly, it, it makes us like better designers because we can foresee a lot of the stuff and the nuts and bolts and the guts that go into the house with BIM. Um, so we can make your job easier building it. But like, you know, third and probably the most important is that um, it's actually appropriate for the site. Like it, the client understands it, it, it's got the right views and actually, you know, works in reality. Yeah, I love that. So like the three points you mentioned, I mean, you talked about communication, which is huge because now you're starting from the right point where you're not going to have a client calling you Saturday morning, you know, from the, the CAD drawings because they've seen it. They've they've walked yeah. through it. You've toured them through. You know that it's appropriate for the setting, right? And the design of the aesthetic there. And then also it allows you more flexibility in design. You know, what's interesting too is, you know, I have a lot of clients that will reach out and this is me as the contractor and say, hey, Brad, you know, I met with, you know, this architect and this architect and, and I'm not to throw a number out there, not that this is your fear anyone, but just for people to understand, you know, they may say, Hey, this architect's $10 a square foot and this one's 15. Right. But you know, the one that 15 is doing bit modeling and rendering. And you know, it's easy for me to say, you know, on a 5,000 square foot house, you're talking about 25 grand. I mean, this is nothing. Even, yeah. even if you're in a conservative budget, when you think about being able to render this and see the time that's going in, you know how much money that's going to save? Cause I can tell you, I'm going to have plan bust. If I, if I don't yeah. have them thinking through mechanical and trust calcs and everything else, whereas you spend that extra money, that's going to save you hundreds of thousands, right? And it's really easy. Yeah. And I'm sure you had that same conversation. I'm sure clients will come to you and say, well, Chris, you may be more than this architect. So how do you walk through that from a cost perspective? Yeah, yeah you really do. it, And that's why some of our initial meetings are really like, I try to block out at least 90 minutes, sometimes two hours, you know, because it's, it's a lot to cover. I mean, just the budget conversation alone could take up that time. Yeah. 
Um, but try to give them a look under the hood as best you can. You know, like I, I really like doing those meetings in my conference room where I can kind of pull up the BIM models and show them, spin through a, a past project and, and compare it to finished photos is always kind of fun. Uh, yeah, showing them the sun angles and the VR, like we have a, a headset in our conference room and I'll force them to put that on and really experience it. Because uh, if you've never done it before, it's, uh, it's pretty eye-opening and it looks totally different than we were just looking at it on the TV. So when did you adopt the VR? How long have you been doing that? Um, I think probably five or six years. Whenever the Oculus One came out, um, I don't know what that, maybe five years, we've been doing it a while. Um, it's been huge because as great as those renderings and having the BIM and all that kind of stuff is, is great, but anytime you look at a 3D object on a 2D platform, it it comes out skewed, right? Especially when you go inside and you're talking about a lot of things like on the periphery. It's the same concept as trying to put the globe in a 2D map, right? Mm -hmm. Things get skewed. So we were having issues walking through clients uh, on these 3D models. They say, God, you know, that, that room looks really, the ceilings look low or it looks really small and that window you know, feels tight, even though it's like, we know it's a huge room and the ceilings are like 12 feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the, the VR, the, the goggles have been huge because we can, we can bring them inside that space. It gives them a depth perception, you know, now all of a sudden they can feel how tall the ceilings are, like how much space there is between the dining table and the kitchen island, and, you know, is the furniture appropriately sized? Like, does it feel like the great room's big enough? You can get far enough away from the TV, even the size of the TV, like that's always a hot button for people, mm -hmm. right? They want to know. <laughs> How big of a TV can I put over the fireplace? Does it feel good enough? So it's been a real game changer to, to do that for our clients, to render it out in a, in a realistic manner too. Like it's more than just the BIM models, as you know, out of the box are kind of cartoonish. They sort of look like, you know, a video game from 20 years ago. Yep. You know, which is great. It's still better than nothing. But when we fully render these things out, we put the furniture, the, the lamps, the lighting, the materials, we really try to make it realistic, even knowing that maybe the interior design is not exactly what they're going to select to do. Yeah. Yeah. But just to have them experience that space and the scale and the sight lines. We almost put all the context in there too, so they know what they're looking at when they look out the window. I love that. And so yeah. from, from the BIM side, are you outsourcing this? Is most of it handled in house? Are you developing, you know, all of the designs and renderings internally? We do. We do it all in-house. Um, we have a great um, art department here, I call it. I've got talented 3D artists. It's basically all they do. Um, they're easily the hardest working guys in the office, too. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we do all the BAM and everything. Um, obviously, we're designing with that. We're doing our documentation with that. Um, and our, our art department is kind of using those. They're using those models to get the uh, uh, exterior renderings, the photorealistic ones and the uh, VR done for our clients. And those are kind of like our big meeting and decision points. So like at the end of our schematic design, we'll present kind of the final floor plans and the uh, exterior renderings. The client's like, okay, this is, this is great. Um, and then at the end of our design development, once we've fully figured out the rest of the BIM model, done some work homework on the HVAC and the guts and kind of work worked out a lot of the details, then we'll do the VR and we'll show them the interior space. That's and fantastic. At that point, they kind of understand like, okay, 
I get it, and I'm not going to make changes. <laughs> Hopefully, ideally, um, yeah, yeah. And then we we go, we we document it. You know, we go through the CDs and get it ready for submittal and all that stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of advantages. You know, for anyone listening, you know, as you're thinking about going through your house and designing your house, if you're to work with someone such as Chris and 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 you think about just going through and making those decisions of the floor plan, the elevation, ceiling heights, you know, visuals. I mean, this is really important, but having the BIM modeling to understand where you can come in and see the cabinetry and see the furniture and do the VR. I mean, it's so valuable, especially now when you, as you mentioned, go to full CDs, the construction drawings, and you work with the consultants for the structural, mechanical, you know, electrical engineering, you're not going to have a ton of changes or costs because that's already been developed for civil and everything else, which in your market, I mean, my, my market's really strict, you know, it's become more strict as far as some of the regulations with the HOAs and the city and municipality, but even more so in California where earthquakes and you're building on the ocean and, you know, piers and retaining walls and, you know, all these things that you have to factor in. And it's really important that you have a good basis for the design itself before you really go down that rabbit hole of designing specifically for what you've designed. Absolutely. And, and how, you know, from, from your side, just speaking of the complex side, Chris, you know, You've, you, you have a great footprint in Southern California. You've, you've done projects in Vail. You've worked in Denver and Vegas, you know, New Hampshire. I mean, you've worked all over the country. So how, you know, are you familiarizing yourself with some of the codes or restrictions or different construction techniques in some of those markets where it's different than California? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And it's honestly one that um, used to keep me up at night a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that's like one of the biggest hurdles that I think architects face in doing projects outside of their area, right? Is that it, it takes years to get familiar with certain codes and processes, and and um, you know to find good builders and tier designers, all that kind of stuff in, in little niche markets. I mean, I I know that Newport Beach is one of the most complex areas to get a house permitted and, and entitled, you know, maybe anywhere in the world. And it's taken us, me, like over 20 years, and I still miss stuff. <laughs> so um, thinking about that as a reverse, like, gosh, if I was a guy coming from Scottsdale trying to do a house in Newport, I, I oh, would, yeah. you know, I'd be freaking out. Um, so I think about that, you know, um, as we uh, as we embark on these ventures. It's just trying to make sure you set, set aside time and resources to clear a lot of that stuff um, and find those partners uh, as early on as you can, like really try to engage builders and engineers and people who have that local experience and are willing to kind of share in that. And so it's kind of a mixed bag, but I feel like finding good local partners is a cornerstone of success for our borrowing projects. And that comes sometimes, we have a project in Seattle, it's under construction right now, and the client was good friends with a local architect up there and he was fine. you know, helping us through the design process and the, the permitting was actually really easy up there. It was all done online and you just submit stuff through a web portal and it didn't physically actually have to be there. Um, but this guy and his team was, was really gracious and helped us, um, you know, manage uh, the design, make sure we didn't make any pitfalls for, for zoning stuff. For us, it's about the envelope, right? Like, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we can hire a good engineer who knows the building codes and, and seismic and wind loads, all this kind of stuff. For us, it's like, do we screw up by making the house too tall by accident or yep. missing a setback? Like, you know, generally speaking, zoning codes are pretty black and white with a lot of that stuff, but there's always these gray areas. And I think it's 
the gray areas that keep me up at night. <laughs> yeah, and you know, shockingly, there's a lot of gray areas. I, you know, I think about it here in Scottsdale. We still have a lot of HOAs that are different, and they could be next door to each other in Scottsdale, but you know, the the setbacks, the building heights, everything is very different from one to another. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of research. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Knock on wood, it's gone. It's gone pretty well so far. Um, I think that I'm also realizing that in California, we're very good at making red tape and things yeah. <laughs> difficult. I found some of these areas, uh, it's been a, a lot easier. Like I, I remember we did our project in Vail, which I understand the town of Vail is actually pretty tough, but this one was just outside in um, Eagle County. And I, we actually had to dust off our code books from like 2007. They were still on like the, you know, the building code from back then. So it was pretty funny. But yeah, we got permits in like two and a half weeks or something. That's so, amazing. I mean, much different in California. And yeah, if you've already conquered California, they definitely have a different benchmark than the rest of us. So, you know, being sensitive to your time, you know, before we end this, uh, you know, we mentioned about it was keeping you up at night just thinking about building in other areas. But as far as your company itself and your team, you know, what is it that keeps you up at night at this point in your career? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I, I really do try to keep my clients happy all the way through the process, you know, and I, I realize that that is a, is a high goal. Um, and it doesn't always work out. So there's those situations, it's not a perfect system, you know, BAM renderings, technology, all this kind of stuff, nothing's perfect. So stuff always happens, things can go wrong. Um, whenever I feel like I've kind of let my clients down, those are definitely the nights that I have a hard time getting to sleep, like shoot myself in the foot doing something or I just missed something or we didn't communicate. We weren't, you know, on having those same expectations, something, something happened, something went wrong. So. Yeah. And, and I can relate. I think that's the toughest thing. It's, you know, as much as we pride ourselves in, being diligent with our systems and trying to refine those. And really it's a very imperfect business. It's a very tough business yeah. construction and architecture. And you know, when, house when, is a prototype, you know, it's, like, well, it's you've never for a reason. we've never designed one. Like it's, yeah, it's everything's brand new. It's always it's, different. Yeah. And so nothing's off the factory line. It's so unique and you're dealing with thousands <laughs> of people and installers and products and suppliers. And so it, it just really complicates everything for you and I, but, you know, it, it, as you mentioned, it's all custom. It's never been done. And so you're trying to figure it out as you go. So even as you have systems, yeah. things get left by the wayside. And, you know, we've tried to refine our communication expectation with the client because that is something that you, we don't want to let them down. But, you know, yeah. you've been super gracious, Chris. I can't thank you enough. So um, no what do you have Yeah, upcoming and exciting for Brandon Architects? Uh, gosh, you know, I feel like we've got a really bright future. COVID's been kind of crazy. At first, you know, we sort of pulled back and, you know, thought things were going to slow down, but then it was like somebody lit a fire. I'm sure you're yeah, it's kind <laughs> feeling of it out there as well. Um, so yeah, I think just a lot of these exciting projects we've got outside of our, our little bubble here in Newport Beach are, are really exciting. Uh, our, our project in uh, New Hampshire is under construction now, um, so I really look forward to visiting that one this summer, doing a framing walk. Uh, later this month, I'm going to Seattle to do a framing walk there. Um, hoping to do more stuff in, uh, in Scottsdale. We already have one out there. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, I'm really excited to see a lot of these, uh, projects come to fruition. We've always got really exciting stuff here in Newport beach as well. And where can our listeners find you? Uh, hopefully on lots of social media platforms. <laughs> <laughs> 
And for those who will oh, tag it in the easy, notes, easy to find us. it is easy. You know, Brandon Architects is pretty simple, but I highly recommend all of you go give them a follow, go see what they're doing. They just have some amazing designs. And I know, uh, you know, just as, as we leave this here, Chris, it's, it's interesting because a lot of my clients will bring images of your designs and your projects. So, you know, kudos to you for what you're doing because you cool. are having an impact, you know, on other markets. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. Thank you, Brad. Hope to see you soon. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.